0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I have to admit that I've had to tear myself away just now from a new book that I just started reading. In fact, uh, I'll probably be uh, keeping my own commentary to a minimum today so that I can get right back to reading it. Uh, it's uh, Dennis McKenna's biography of his brother Terrence. And as you already know, uh, oh, about a year ago, I guess it was, that Dennis held a Kickstarter campaign to raise the funds necessary to uh, have the time to write and uh, also to self-publish uh, which uh, I really think is the only way to go right now for uh, writers who aren't already well-established. In any event, uh, Dennis' book is titled The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. And uh, in it, you'll read not only uh, about how the title came about, but also about some things that uh, have, uh, well, for me at least, provided some uh, new insights into the life and mind of Terrence McKenna, and uh, that have answered uh, several questions about Terrence that have puzzled me for quite a few years. And uh, although I'm not yet uh, even a quarter of the way through reading it, I can also attest to the fact that. Dennis is an excellent writer. Uh, you know, having previously read some of his scientific papers, I was a little concerned that uh, maybe his writing might be a bit dry for us non-scientists. Well, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, it's an exceptionally well-written book and is a true joy to read. So, uh, I recommend that you pick up a copy if you haven't done so already. And uh, next spring, when I resume playing some more of Terence's lectures, I'm sure that uh, well, we'll have uh, a lot of. New angles to discuss about the bard's life, um, and I'll I'll put a link to the book uh, that book in our program notes for this podcast, which, uh, as you already know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, now let me uh, introduce today's uh, Palenque Norte lecture. It was given by Brian Wallace, and uh, he titled his talk "The Entheobotany of Cacao." But as you can see, uh, I've changed that title uh, after hearing the talk because, uh, well, I think he covered a lot more ground than the original title uh, led one to believe. Now, uh, if you don't know who Brian is, uh, well, it isn't because he hasn't been deeply involved in our community for a long time. Uh, I first became aware of him when uh, he was working at MAPS, uh, and that's probably where he first crossed your path as well. But uh, what I didn't realize until I heard this talk is that Brian is also what uh, I guess is called a chocolatier, (laughs) although I suspect that I don't quite have that title correct. Uh, Anyway, uh, how can you not like a guy with a great big smile and who's also an expert on chocolate? Sweet, huh? (laughs) I'm sorry, I just couldn't resist that. Anyway, uh, as you and I are about to hear right now, there is uh, a lot more, and I mean a lot more, to cacao than uh, just chocolate treats. Now, in his talk, you're going to uh, hear Brian mention an earlier podcast that I did featuring Jonathan Ott, uh, who is talking about chocolate as a drug enhancer. And uh, that remains an excellent talk, but I think uh, Brian's Palenque Norte lecture that uh, you and I are about to listen to right now is, uh, well, I think it's uh, going to significantly expand your knowledge about a plant that I uh, now have come to think of as uh, next in importance to cannabis, uh, which uh, of course, is my main ally and constant companion. So, without any further ado, uh, let's pretend that it is now noon on uh, the Wednesday of the 2012 Burning Man Festival, and that you and I have uh, just now drug ourselves out of our sleeping bags, uh, ridden our bikes across the playa, and uh, then plopped down on a big cushion at Camp Above the Limit, where Brian Wallace is about to begin his talk.
1: This morning we have Brian Wallace with us. He's going to talk to you a little bit about the ethnobotany of cacao, and I believe he has some chocolate samples for you as well. Um, I met Brian several years ago working in drug policy reform. He was working for MAPS at the time, and um, then we kind of crossed paths again before this year's Burning Man, because Brian here designed the speaker series over at Fractal Nation Village. um, For those who... Uh, have been over there, I encourage you to go check it out. There's a lot of crossover between the speakers, so if you missed something that you wanted to see or uh, you want to see something that's not being offered here or there, definitely check out their speaker series, which started yesterday at 5 p.m. Yeah, So all day through Saturday through Friday. Cool. Well, once again, thanks for waking up early.
2: (laughs) With that, here's Brian Wallace. Good morning, or good afternoon. How's everybody doing? A little groggy. A little warm outside. Um, so I'm here to talk to you guys about chocolate. Um, something, uh, a sweet treat that is in, uh, it's pretty pervasive. It's in everybody's lives. It's on the store shelves. Um, it's something uh, that I've noticed people having a hard time uh, defining Uh, Is it a food? It's on the food shelves, but uh, there are components of it uh, that have medicinal aspects. Um, There are components of it that when extracted have drug-like aspects. Um, It tastes delicious. It's a dessert, um, you know, and, uh, you know, which one is it? Which one of these things could it be? Um, And the answer is all of the above. Um, So... The title of this talk, The Entheobotany of Cacao, Um, I kind of want it, my my hope is that I can weave a picture for how all of those different uh, labels uh, interrelate with each other, Um, whether it's the chemical components or how it's grown, how it's traded, all of these different things to kind of give a a better understanding uh, and a better awareness of how You can use uh, or indulge or enjoy uh, um, in this uh, treat in your life and we'll actually get to do that here too. Um, I brought some nice chocolate for you guys all to sample. Um, So we're here at Palenque Norte and uh, you guys, I don't know, have you guys been to other talks here uh, since yesterday? Well you should come other days because they're all going to be amazing. Um but a lot of the talks here are, you know, psychedelic or entheogenic in nature. Um and to me I feel like cacao, um, while it might not traditionally be thought of as a psychedelic or entheogen, uh, for me it's very much uh a psychedelic uh and is very much an entheogenic uh substance. Um, Psychedelic, you know, originally coined as a term that means mind manifesting Um, and cacao. um, You know, when you take a nice, good hit, a strong cacao, um, which, by the way, how many of you guys have taken like a good, strong, like dose of pure uh, 100% cacao? Nice. What did you think about it? Yummy. (laughs) Great. Great. Um, So psychedelic mind manifesting cacao definitely has the potential to be used in this way to manifest one's thoughts one's intentions and uh also uh you know for me is a is a is a substance that uh, is a great idea of uh i guess uh, like a reference point for non-duality in that uh it uh it works on this subjective psychological level um, but physiologically the activity that cacao has in the body uh, almost mirrors uh, this consciousness expanding uh, psychedelic effect so I'll get into that a little bit later and how that physiology breaks down and also before I get too far into things um, you know I'm here to talk to you guys about cacao but if you guys have any questions or something doesn't seem clear um, raise your hand. This is uh, meant to be a discussion, a workshop, uh, participatory for all you guys. Um, so if you have uh, something to add or a comment, please, by all means, uh, I encourage that. So cacao basics. How many people are familiar with uh, how cacao is grown and the different varieties, the different cultivars, where it's grown in the world? Awesome. Awesome. So, um, Cacao being uh, theobroma cacao is a genus species of it, as named by Linnaeus, the godfather of evolution. Uh, Theobroma meaning uh, Theo, being uh, divine or godlike, and broma meaning food. So literally, uh, so named by Linnaeus as the food of the gods. so there are three main cultivars or varieties of cacao that are around in the world, uh, Criollo, Forastero, and Trinitario. Uh, Criollo is c- grown in about, it's about 5% of production all over the world. It's nice and fatty, has a huge cocoa butter content, and you can kind of eat the straight beans and they kind of melt in your mouth. Uh, the Forastero is about 80% of the cacao grown in the world. Um, Depending, on, There are even sub-varieties of each of these, too. But Forastero is more disease-resistant. It's easier to grow. Um, and a lot of the big cacao companies choose this chocolate um, to grow because of those reasons. So um, it might not be the best tasting in a lot of instances, but it's very easy to grow. And the profit margin is thus really high. So, you know, Nestle, Hershey's, all these big chocolate companies are growing a lot of Forastero. Uh, a lot in africa and then tunitario is uh a combination or a hybrid of criollo and forestero and tunitario is about 15 percent of production uh in the world and tunitario is uh is 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 kind of uh any combination of a specific type of criollo and a specific type of forestero hybridized um and it can there are all different kinds so it's kind of like uh You know, the amount of combinations that are possible, that's a good reference point. Uh, I mean, probably a lot of you are familiar with the cannabis that's grown out there and the indica-sativa hybrids. Uh, It's almost the same way with criollo and forestero. Uh, Depending on the dominant strain, you can get uh, higher fat content, higher alkaloid content. You can get uh, more fruity characteristics. You can get a more nutty characteristic, all of these different things. So there are people that spend uh, their entire lives working on cultivars like this uh, to make the tastiest chocolate for you that's also easy to grow um, for them so let's see. so it's also worth noting that there's the theobroma genus and there's also herania which is uh, related closely related to chocolate um, but you know in that the tree looks similar uh, the pods are similar sort of um, but the similarities in it that are worth paying attention to from a ethnobotanical perspective are how different cultures throughout North and South America where cacao is kind of native to and where it grows most often, um, the different uses and the different medicinal applications uh, that these cultures uh, kind of focus their time around, I guess. So... In terms of these different native cultures that are still using cacao or that have been using cacao for centuries or even thousands of years, um, they're all over the place. And it's really difficult for us to actually tell what these traditional uses are um, because during the Spanish conquest, you know, 1500 to 1700 or so, a lot of the records and a lot of the written records that were around or a lot of even the, um, you know, the verbal... uh, you know, passing down through generations, uh, the stories and uses, um, and applications of a cacao were lost. Um, so there are a lot of native cultures that we see throughout the Americas today that are using cacao in a specific way. And it's really difficult for us to tell, you know, have they been doing that for a hundred years? Have they been doing that for thousands of years? Um, there are so many different cultures using it, uh, that it's, that's almost impossible. To tell, it's almost so. From the Americas, we have traditional uses throughout Panama, Costa Rica, Mexico, Central America, um, and then a huge amount all around the entire Amazon basin. All kinds of different tribes are using cacao, have been using cacao for hundreds of years, if not much, much longer. Um, and we do know that the Spanish actually took cacao originally when the Spanish landed. They, you know. Um, basically everybody spit out cacao they were like this is terrible what is this this is garbage um and for a while it wasn't really uh respected in the way that the native cultures were using it you know there were a lot of uh you know the mines and the aztecs would trade cacao as though as we trade dollar bills they were used as a currency uh for a long time and when the spanish came they kind of just like you know uh put a stop to that and completely devalued um the the social currency that cacao was um but at the same time uh later on during the conquest uh took cacao and took the value of it and realized the potential for its use um in trading with other native cultures and bridging the gap between other cultures that they were inevitably trying to conquer uh and exploit uh but it was kind of a a foot in the door uh, for them which is obviously pretty terrible <laughs> um okay so let's let, let's talk about a, a couple of these specific uh uses and uh and cacao kind of as a uh you know what I was getting to earlier in the psychedelic uh you know, what is it, a medicine, a plant, a dessert, a treat, an indulgence, all these different things. So let's get into a couple of the specifics of them. Um, you guys can kind of have a reference point for what we're talking about. So um, Brazil, Venezuela, and Colombia uh, use various preparations, uh, Theobroma and Hirania, um, burnt. They burn the leaves, they burn the bark, and actually combine it with uh, various types of varilla species uh, to make hallucinogenic snuffs. Which is like, whoa, okay, that's weird. Uh, why is that happening? Um, so it turns out that actually cacao contains a lot of uh, components and a lot of chemical constituents that actually enhance uh, other uh, substances, other medicines. Um, and almost uh, focus the activity of those things. And uh, shamans and traditions um, that have had cacao you know, in their backyard growing natively uh, in the rainforest have kind of picked up on this and kind of used cacao uh, as, a, uh, as a tool to uh, understand how a lot of other uh, plants and substances actually work. So I'm, how many of you are actually familiar with uh, ayahuasca, the vine? Oh, great. Well, I don't have to make too much of a stretch to, to kind of make the comparison there between uh, the traditional use of the vine as a, as a tool to get a better understanding of other plants, uh, not, not just DMT-containing plants um, to use as a, as a visionary brew, um, but to actually understand and um, focus the energy or enhance uh the effect of a specific um you know brew or substance or uh medicine or other plant that's going to be used so they're kind of similar in that aspect and i'll get into the chemistry later and we can draw some comparisons between ayahuasca and you know pure uh cacao so uh you know, besides being used in uh, hallucinogenic snuffs, uh, it's also used with another uh, traditional uh, Amazonian uh, plant teacher, which is tobacco. Um, so cacao has been used traditionally with, uh, hand-in-hand with tobacco um, by numerous uh, tribes and cultures throughout the Amazon basin um, in various preparations. Uh, similar to use with Virola, it's been used... Uh, burnt as a snuff and this is just the leaves and the bark again not the actual beans so we don't know uh, what alkaloids are actually maintained and concentrated by taking the plant matter and burning it but one would assume that there's something that gets concentrated uh, and enhances the effects of um, the virola or the tobacco uh, in a specific way Um, so you know, like most things that you'll hear lectures about here in the, uh, in Palenque Norte, we need to do more research. We need to throw more money at this and and figure out uh, what's actually going on uh, to get a better understanding of it and see how uh, we can understand it and respect these traditions and kind of bring them into our own use. You know, these are these are things that you know the average person is looking at a chocolate bar on the shelf and they have no idea uh, is going on. So. Okay, what else? What else? Um, So, you know, there there are a handful of other, I mean, there there are countless other uh, medicinal uses of various parts of the cacao tree. Um, It's used for anywhere from throat infections to uh, people that are malnourished, people that have had difficult uh, uh, digestive issues or diseases or viruses to kind of get some, uh, you know, easy to digest fats into their bodies and kind of get them back and put together uh, physiologically after they've been kind of drained by a disease or an ailment um, so uh, you know and then there's a how many of you have actually seen the actual tree right in front of you um, and how many of you have have seen like the actual pod or even a, just a picture of the pod okay so for those of you that haven't cacao can be a po- cacao can be a pod about yay big to a little bit bigger. It's shaped like a football. It can be any number of colors depending on some of those varieties that I was talking about earlier. Yellow, green, blue, brown, uh, red, maroon, purple, um, all of these different things. Um, And when you the pod grows on the base of the tree, it doesn't grow kind of from the branches like a lot of fruit trees do. So it grows straight from from kind of the uh, trunk of the tree. So pulling the pod when it's ready to harvest... Um, you can kind of crack it open and it'll have, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 or so cacao beans inside of it. And, uh, they're surrounded by this white, uh, pulpy, delicious substance. That's, uh, you know, really kind of a delicacy. And every time I've got to enjoy it, it's just like, it's words don't describe how delicious this stuff really is. Um. Before cacao was used by a lot of these cultures and before they discovered that various preparations of the bean could be eaten or various medicinal applications could be, uh, you know, utilized from the leaves or the bark or what have you, uh, people would crack open these pods out in the wild and suck out this white nectar. It's almost like uh, the consistency of like a pudding and it's sweet. Nothing has to be done with it. You can eat it right out of the pod. Um, It's completely delicious. Um, So you can actually take that uh, pulp or pulpa um, and make it into any number of wines or vinegars or liquors and there are a lot of tribes that are doing this um, and still do to this day Um, and some combine it with other different uh, psychoactive substances or medicinal substances to uh, um, bring out cacao's uh, enhancing or uh, synergistic effect so besides that, there are also tons of different uh, ways that cacao is used uh, traditionally uh, in various rites of passage, uh, in um, coming of age rites, uh, in puberty rites, uh, and it's interesting to note. I mean, in addition to that, it's also used, uh, you know, before, during, and after uh, women's cycles. Um, during and following birth to facilitate ease of birth Um, and you know like a lot of native cultures we don't know why they just know that it works you know they aren't they don't say oh well there's this medicinal component of it and that's why we're doing it but um, from a very simple perspective we can say that you know cacao has a very high mineral content um, and that resupplementing with minerals during these times can facilitate or ease uh, physiological difficulties that people can have during these uh, transitionary periods or you know cycling periods uh, in their lives, so it 's interesting to note all of these you know i I could spend hours and hours going tribe by tribe and talking about each of these different uses, but I want to kind of step back and look more at the meta uh, of it and say that there are countless tribes using uh, cacao in these ways that have never met each other that are in different parts of the Americas, you know, whether it's, you know, from Panama all the way down to Peru, um, you know, or anywhere in between. So, um, yeah. What else? What else? Uh, let's see here. The other, the other part that's, that's interesting to note, and I've kind of hinted on this is this cacao, this idea of cacao shamanism or cacao ceremony. Um, you know it's it 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 isn't quite like ayahuasca in that there isn't like a uh a huge tradition of ritual and a huge tradition of ceremony that's pervasive in in many different tribes in the use of cacao uh it's more so used as a carrier um or a enhancer kind of like what i was saying uh earlier and uh you know there have be been people there's kind of been like a, a surge of people in the west uh people in the Americas, actually uh taking taking this and running with it and actually trying to create ritual uh, and ceremony around cacao have, has anyone here actually participated in cacao ceremony oh nice um so cacao ceremony is becoming uh, a popular thing uh in certain parts of the world there's there's a large group of people in Guatemala uh, doing cacao ceremony and uh, kind of like the idea with cacao in ceremony is that, uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's, it was, it wouldn't be comparable to a traditional psychedelic that's strong and kind of forceful. It's almost more like uh, an MDMA like substance that kind of like provides an opening and depending on the set and setting uh, can really provide a therapeutic effect for people. Um, or it can just be something that you enjoy and that you have fun with. So in the cacao ceremony, this is kind of like the idea is to create uh, a ritual or a setting that can, uh, create the maximum benefit for that window that cacao can provide. So the cacao ceremony, you know, um, is almost like it can almost be thought of as a, uh, like a group therapy session. Um, in that, You know some people come and they ingest the cacao and they feel nice um and uh that's it and some people come and they enjoy their cacao and uh you know within a few minutes of you know really releasing into their experience have a complete heart opening effect and you know are sobbing tears of various emotions that they're working through um you know various traumas can come up can be dealt with and uh these kind of group settings really facilitate, um, you know, the the, uh, integration and the work around those things that can come up. So, uh, yeah. Um, I think there was only one hand that came up uh, for people that have participated in a cacao ceremony, and uh, I'd really encourage you guys to try it. And, you know, it doesn't have to be like, well, I have to find a cacao shaman. It's something you can go do with a friend uh, with a lover, uh, with you know a group of people, um, I would recommend if you're gonna do this though to get cacao that's minimally processed, something that's in a paste, you can make a strong decoction uh, with the beans um, themselves, and uh, I would really recommend against the the urge to to sweeten it uh, maybe a little bit is okay, but you know you really kind of need to get a good strong Uh, dose of cacao in your body and it's it's going to be bitter um you know the bitter you know aspect you know from a traditional perspective is very energy moving very clearing um so it's good embrace the bitterness embrace that movement and uh try it out and let me know how it goes um so i've been talking a little bit about this uh this enhancing or uh carrier-like aspects of cacao, of pure cacao. How many of you have uh, listened to the Polenca Norte talk that was delivered by Jonathan Ott, uh, called a drug enhancer called chocolate? Okay, nice. Um, I was thinking that there might have been more people that heard about it, so I tried to actually remove a lot of the stuff from my presentation that's in there. So I'm just gonna say that uh, it's a fantastic talk. And if you're interested interested in learning more about this, uh, listen to that talk. Uh, There's great information in there and kind of John gets into more specifics about some of the things I've got into here Um, So check it out It's on the psychedelic salon. Yeah, um, I'm not sure what year it's actually It's in there you can find it So, you know what I'm gonna skip some of the stuff that I was gonna talk about on on ecology um, and get into the, more of the the juicy stuff on the, uh, the actual chemistry of cacao, so we can give a you know our, our our Western minds or a lot of our Western minds I shouldn't generalize everybody here uh, like to know the specifics. How does it work? Uh, where's the research? What's the science? So um, to to feed that a little bit, uh, I want to get into the chemistry of cacao, um, which we actually know quite a bit about. Um, it's extremely complex. Uh, there are a host of alkaloid substances um, and chemical components that produce the effect of cacao in your body and your mind um, and uh, you know the relationship between the two um, the alkalo- or the, uh, the components can be completely different day and night different depending on the variety, depending on the part of the plant whether it 's the bean, which is what you know the chocolate that you 're familiar with eating comes from. Um, or the leaves or all of these other parts of the plant. So, um, also, you know, I'm, I got a little bit ahead of myself here. How many of you guys are, are familiar with a process that where they take the bean and actually make it into something that, you know, can end up in a store shelf, actual chocolate. That's like sweet and delicious.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. So cacao beans are pulled from the tree Uh, ground down the shells removed Um, they're fermented for a period of five to eight days depending on who's doing it Um, and then they're dried roasted ground down and uh, gone through various steps of uh, processing to get uh, the chocolate that most of us know and love that you can buy in the stores that's uh, you know sweet and uh, when you bite into it, uh, it kind of dissolves in your mouth in a particular way. And there are people that have spent millions of dollars on this, literally, to to get the perfect uh, micron size of chocolate. So when you bite into that piece of chocolate, it dissolves in your tongue and your mouth in a particular way to carry those molecules that taste all the way to your taste buds uh, and kind of open things up. So... Um, I mention that now because uh, part of this, uh, the, the chemistry of cacao uh, is really impacted by how it's processed, by the, the steps that, go, that it goes through before it gets to you. So fermenting and roasting specifically, um, and then also some of the high heat processes and the grinding and the refining can really completely change um, the, uh, the chemical components of cacao, uh, the things that have the psychoactive or the medicinal um, or just the feel-good effects. Um, so there's a, there's a huge uh, kind of uh, popularity that's uh, focused on probably the West Coast, you know, California, the Bay Area, which is where I live. So I'm a little partial in, to that. But uh, in, in the raw foods movement, which is eating less processed, minimally processed foods that are kept under a certain temperature range. So cacao is kind of like this hotbed topic. Uh, for the raw food thing because generally raw foods are said to not be over 118, 120, um, and cacao can actually reach 130, 140 degrees when it's being fermented, Um, and then obviously roasting it is going to really get the temperature soaring up to 200, sometimes almost 300 degrees. Um, So, you know, a lot of these components that I'm about to talk about uh, are destroyed Uh, or neutralized or completely broken down by a lot of these processes so actually when you buy 9 out of 10 chocolate bars from the store um, they don't have a lot of these things in them or the content of them is so drastically reduced that you know you'd have to eat um, you know a kilo of these bars to actually get the effect and by then you'd have so much sugar in your body that you'd just be spinning so hard and crashing from the sugar is pretty pretty unpleasant kind of thing. so, anyways, let's get into the let's get into the chemical components. So, um, main chemi- chemistry of cacao uh, revolves around these methylxanthines. So, methylxanthines are are a class of chemicals that um, are include caffeine is the most pervasive uh, methylxanthine that a lot of you are familiar with. Um, also, theophylline, which is in uh, various types of tea, higher content in green, white, oolong teas, and it's also very high in uh, yerba mate. Um, There's also tetramethylurate is another different type of methylxanthine that's found in cacao. Um, And then the big one uh, for cacao is theobromine. So theobromine uh, is related structurally to these other stimulant compounds, um, but it has uh, a little bit more of a, uh, a grounding effect which is kind of strange. I don't know if you guys are are familiar with, uh, you know, ingesting high amounts of yerba mate versus high amounts of coffee. And uh, the difference here is that coffee, um, you know, is going to be much higher in caffeine content. It's a little bit more jittery, a little bit more uh, anxious, I guess you could say, depending on, you know, your your own makeup. Um, But yerba mate, people, you know, a lot overwhelmingly say that it's a little bit more grounding. It's a little bit more focusing. Um, I've talked to a lot of students that really, pr- once they get into mate, love mate so much more for studying uh, than they do coffee because of its kind of grounding effect. And uh, this is because the stimulant in it is, is closely related to caffeine, but it's, it's, it's theobromine. It's different. It's a little bit different. So the the stimulant effect of cacao that, that like uh, you get when you take a nice strol- solid dose of it uh, comes from this theobromine um and the theobromine uh you know unlike caffeine can be actually a little bit more grounding a little bit more centering a little bit more heart-centered so that in combination with some of the other components that i'll talk about in a sec give cacao this uh almost like it's like a a heart-centered stimulant you could say um it's a little bit more grounding but still stimulating so um so the next part are, are, are the polyphenols polyphenol classic compounds that are in cacao um which are the antioxidants everybody's like crazy about antioxidants they gotta get their blueberries and their acai they gotta get uh you know all these things into their body um and it's a, a, a little bit of a fad but um it is good to have a lot of antioxidants in your body it's it's nice it's good for you it's healthy um you know and the, and the polyphenols that are in cacao, uh, you know, in addition to have super strong antioxidant activity, cacao is actually uh, if, cacao is actually uh, one of the strongest uh, antioxidant foods that you can take um, in terms of the amount that you actually have to eat to get the effect. It's higher than blueberries, higher than acai, higher than a lot of these things that people can eat. So, um, an interesting point on this is that. Um, you know, people associate this purple color with antioxidant activity because a lot of the things that actually color, uh, foods purple, like blueberries and acai, um, are actually providing the antioxidant activity as well. So a thing that a lot of people don't know is that cacao beans are actually purple. You open up that pod, you remove that pulp from the outside of them and you crack open a cacao bean. Uh, they're purple on the inside. They're bright, bright purple. Um, they're really beautiful, um, very nice and uh, I actually have a, a good pocket full of cacao beans here um, That I was uh, gonna pass out who you guys interested in uh, trying some straight cacao beans I'll just run around burning man with a pocket full of cacao. It's not bad So they are bitter <laughs> Be prepared um, To reduce the the bitterness you can remove the shell on the outside um, if you like, um, you can kind of crack it with your teeth and remove the shell and eat the inside. Uh, but it's still even the even the, the seed in the inside is going to be pretty bitter. Um, the uh, the outer husk that you can peel off is actually where a lot of the magnesium is. So depending on the uh, the, the traditional application that I was talking about earlier, um, you know, with birth, women's cycles, these different things, the se- the husk is actually left on. Uh, in the preparations and ground down or, uh, you know, kind of mashed down with the stone to be prepared. Um, But it does add a little bit of bitterness, which some people don't prefer. Um, All the chocolate that you eat from the store shelves has had the husk completely removed. There are these really elaborate, crazy machines that kind of dry out the cacao and make the inner seed dehydrate, desiccate a little bit, which loosens up that husk. And then there are all kinds of elaborate uh, blowing, like air blowing machines that just blow the husk off. They're really kind of wild uh, to actually watch these things work. Anyways, I don't want to get too far off topic. Um, the antioxidants. Uh, so the two main antioxidants that are in cacao are epicatechin and uh, procyanidin. The procyanidin being uh, that what actually makes them purple. Um, so procyanidin, besides being a super strong antioxidant, is also an anticoagulant uh, for your blood. Helps blood flow. Um, and uh, like I was saying earlier, these different chemical components can be really changed by the fermenting and roasting. Um, and procyanidin specifically uh, can be drastically lowered depending on how high the temperature gets. And there are people uh, in the raw food movement trying to understand if that number is 120, if that number is 140. And I really hope we get some clarity on that because the, the traditional cacao people, uh, the traditional chocolate purveyors are really uh, putting a heat on, on a lot of people to actually uh give some evidence on why raw chocolate is better. Uh because there isn't a lot of science on this kind of stuff. Um, even though uh you know when you eat a lot of this stuff you can feel it in your body, you know. Uh it's a hot topic, to say the least. Uh so the other main antioxidant here is epicatechin, which is really the fun one uh and really one of the more interesting ones. So, epicatechin, besides being a strong uh, antioxidant, uh, stimulates nitric oxide synthase in your body. So, nitric oxide is uh, what is given to people with uh, various types of cardiac ailments, uh, hypertension. Uh, it's kind of these little tablets. I don't know if you've ever seen people with like the little necklace that's really super small and they have little tablets in it that are uh, sublingual nitric oxide so you can take nitric oxide because it's a it's a vasodilator and if you start having kind of chest pain or something like that that's your signal that you should be taking your heart pills and uh cacao uh, has its own effect like this cacao actually stimulates uh the enzyme in your body that produces nitric oxide so it helps with this vasodilating uh effect it's also you know you guys know the biggest muscle in your heart and your body is your heart, um, so cacao has uh, literally and metaphorically this uh, heart opening uh, effect in the body so the other thing that 's just kind of funny fun to point out uh, is anybody else familiar with this a really common drug that uh, is, uh, has uh, activity on nitric oxide in the body? Viagra viagra uh works very strongly on nitric oxide synthase so um you know we have uh this uh, lore of cacao as a very strong uh aphrodisiac and uh you know Cas- casanova uh was said to uh lure uh women to his chambers with cacao uh specifically that was kind of his uh mo uh so you know we have this uh this tradition this idea of cacao as an aphrodisiac and that's because uh, you know um, not only is it nice a a sensual indulgent kind of treat but it also works in your body to kind of activate these different parts of your physiology that really can uh, enhance arousal and can enhance uh, uh, sensitivity so i talked a little bit earlier too about uh, cacao's uh, traditional use as an enhancer um, for other substances Um, and as it turns out um cacao actually has uh mao inhibition activity are you guys familiar with mao inhibition activity like in uh, the ayahuasca brew so cacao uh like ayahuasca actually has very light uh not not nearly as strong as ayahuasca uh, but uh, has light mao inhibition activity um uh, there are various tetrahyda beta-carbolines um And uh, the epicatechin, uh, the one that I was just talking about that works on nitric nitric oxide synthase, is actually an MAO-B inhibitor as well. So you're taking, uh, when you you ingest this good, strong dose of cacao, you get a lot of these chemical components, but you also get ones that actually enhance uh, the effects that cacao has in and of itself. Um, So it's kind of like this synergistic uh, effect feedback loop that just kind of builds upon itself. Um, You know, and also, you know, cacao contains uh, tryptamine, various other types of uh, amino acids, different things like that. It contains serotonin, but um, some of you probably know that serotonin doesn't immediately cross the blood-brain barrier when you ingest it, Um, but it's in there. Um, It contains tryptamine as well, um, precursors to uh, various types of things in your body. Um, It also contains another component that... uh, People are just trying to uh, kind of get an understanding on which is anandamine, um, Ananda being Sanskrit for bliss, um, and anandamine is actually a component of some things that uh, some foods, some medicines, um, that uh, agonizes or has activity at the endocannabinoid system. So. You know, when you ingest cacao, not only are you getting some—you're getting tryptamine, you're getting monoamine oxidase inhibitors, you're getting stimulant compounds, um, you're also getting uh, endocannabinoid activity in your brain, which is kind of like the bliss, like the uh, my eyes are rolling back in my head kind of feeling. Um, So they all kind of work together and synergize. um, You know, and all of these things are, of course, enhanced by cacao's high mineral content, lots of vitamin C, lots of vitamin E. um, It's just all around lots of yummy, good stuff in that cacao. Um, last, uh, the last chemical component that I wanted to talk about is, uh, phenethylamine. Um, are you guys familiar with the, uh, kind of two major classes of traditional psychedelic compounds of tryptamines and phenethylamines? So, uh, cacao actually contains phenethylamine, which, you know, in and of itself isn't psychedelic. Um, in your body, it's actually released, uh, when you have, uh, uh, it's, it's released, uh, in how to how to best say this uh when a person is in love when a person is feeling uh specifically uh that kind of like longing and like urgency uh feeling that people can get with a, with a partner or a lover or a crush or whatever uh phenethylamine is released at that time and it has a lot of activity uh on dopamine systems and different uh norepinephrine and and systems like that in your brain so um again uh phenethylamine uh, being strongly activated um, and, you know, many psychedelics being strongly activated and enhanced by MAO inhibitors. Um, Phenethylamine in and of itself, unlike the traditional psychedelics that are made from phenethylamine or have that as a backbone, um, isn't, uh, it's metabolized in the body very rapidly. Um, So the MAO inhibitors are actually needed for that effect. And uh, there have been a lot of, uh, you know, Chocolate is the love drug. I don't know if you guys have ever heard or seen articles on this, but uh, there was a guy that got a lot of heat for for really being a proponent of, like, cacao is a love drug because of all of this phenethylamine that gets in your body, and it turns out that phenethylamine is broken down rapidly within a couple of minutes. Um, but luckily, uh, in this moon-only process stuff, um, you get your MAO, MAO inhibition activity that happens as well that actually... Allows that phenethylamine to circulate in your synapses a little bit longer, a little bit more, have a little bit more activity. Um, so yeah, all around yummy, all around good stuff. Um, I think I'm about out of time, and I do, I do still want to pass out some uh, some chocolate treats um, and do Q and A. And let me just take two minutes here, real quick, to fi- to get into something that I that's kind of like the. I don't want to be the Debbie Downer and end the uh, and the talk on this, but uh, it's something that's r- very real for me, uh, and that I think a lot of people could bring uh, more attention and awareness to. Um, you know, as Westerners and um, the political systems that we're in, uh, one of the strongest things you can do to promote uh, social change uh, and social justice is actually to vote with your dollar. Um, and as it turns out, cacao. Uh, in the Ivory Coast and in many parts of Africa, is still uh, being grown, being harvested, being processed by using child slave labor. Um, children are being abducted um, from their families, from their homes. They're being sold into slavery uh, to farmers uh, on the Ivory Coast, um, and uh, it's terrible. You know, it's it's something that not a lot of people like to talk about, and it's something that uh, the big cacao and the big chocolate companies. Uh, are completely pushing under the rug. There was actually uh, a protocol, the Harkin-Engel protocol, uh, was drafted in 2001 um, as uh, a piece of legislation in the U.S. Um, that would actually uh, require chocolate companies to certify that their products were child slave labor free. And uh, you know, since all this, uh, you know, children, child slave labor is cheap. And that's why it's used. And uh, these companies are very protective, protective over their profit margins and uh, got in a big fuss over this and actually uh, you know, put up a lot of money and a lot of resistance uh, to, get this, to get the wording and uh, the uh, actual logistical what would happen. Uh, the, the, the consequences of this protocol changed to be less hard for them. To protect their profit margins, so um, it's uh, you know it was it was the goal was to uh, have uh, child slave labor be completely ended by 2005. Uh, the protocol was redrafted in 2008 because it didn't work. In 2010, because it didn't work, um, and uh, still has the uh, the goals and the tenets of uh, this piece of legislation have still not been met. Um, now we're we're getting over 10 years later, and uh, it's really it's really just a tragedy. Uh, it's really terrible, um, you know. And we could talk about that a lot, but really, I'm I'm here uh, to take my soapbox moment and urge you uh, that when you're buying chocolate products, uh, to not buy them um, from the Ivory Coast, to not buy them from Africa, um, and if you can, buy them fair trade. Um, these are all ways that you can influence um, companies. With your voting dollar to actually make a difference and put their money uh, back into uh, protecting uh, the interests of these children. So, um, who's ready to eat some chocolate? (laughs) Sure. Um, Fair trade, uh, what do I think about fair trade? Um, I think it's great. And I think uh, I I wish all chocolate was uh, produced fair trade. one of the things about uh, that I was going to get into on the ecology of cacao is that uh, that that relates to the fair trade thing is that uh, a lot of the traditional cultures that are have used cacao are actually the ones that are growing it for a lot of places that are fair trade so there are a lot of uh excuse me uh, there are a lot of native uh tribes um, throughout the Americas throughout Central America and South America um, that uh are represented by a cooperative or a collective that's kind of like the, uh, the uh, warehouse or the place where um, a family can pull a kilo of cacao beans off of the tree that's growing in front of their hut and bring it to the collective and get a couple dollars for it. Or uh, a different family or a different group of farmers can grow thousands or, or more kilos and bring it to the cooperative. And that cooperative is actually what's fair trade certified. So the cooperative has the relationship with all the individual farmers. And the thing about this relationship is that uh, some of these native cultures have such a strong uh, cultural tradition around cacao that they actually don't want to be. Uh, they don't want to change the way that they grow their cacao. So the Bribri in uh, in costa rica are our, our good example of this cacao is sacred for them um i got a chance to go down there and and hang out with a cacao shaman and do cacao ceremony there and and uh it was it was different because it wasn't used for necessarily a psychoactive effect it was actually used uh um uh, almost as a purification rite so it's actually used to uh bless uh dead bodies or it's used during funeral rites and it's the butter is used to um clean the hands um and the hearts of family members and friends and and people that come to a funeral uh, ceremony for people so that have these people that have you know touched uh the body of the deceased um the cacao is actually used to, to cleanse um but anyways i got back to your Back to fair trade. Um, The brie brie don't want to change how they grow their cacao. Um, Cacao, uh, if you have a a monocropped field, uh, a forest of cacao, you can get 2,000, 3,000 kilos per hectare. The brie brie maybe get 20, 30. They have hectares and hectares of cacao, and they might get a couple pods out of it. And people have tried to come in and say, well, you know, let let me help you uh with your cacao and let me teach you how to how to grow get get a better yield you know um anywhere from cutting off the pods that are diseased to different trimming techniques to growing different cultivars or what have you and they don't want to do it so it's 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 limiting for them in that they can't actually you know they can sell to the fair trade places but they aren't selling a lot they they could be making a lot more money Um, and then there are tribes like the ngabe in panama that are like Tell us how to grow the cacao. We want the money. Give us the money. <laughs> you know, and, and they understand it as a tool for economic development. So, you know, kind of two ends of the spectrum um, in terms of uh, how ca- how that fair trade thing influences how cacao is grown um, and all the different cultural factors, traditional factors that are weaved into that in your end product. Um, there are also people that say fair trade cacao isn't very good. I think that's a bunch of crap uh <laughs> but uh, yeah, hopefully that answers your question it was a long winded answer. Anybody else have any uh questions? Um, I was wondering if you could just describe one of your own personal experiences of
1: taking a lot of cacao just like subjectively so we can understand what what you feel like
2: sure, so taking uh what are my experiences? Uh, I assume taking like good, strong, uh, you know, what I would call a medicinal dose of cacao. Um, it sure is uplifting. <laughs> um, you know, I have a, I have a friend that uh, was on antidepressant medication um, that uh, tells me that she stopped taking her medication because she uses cacao. Um, she uses good, strong doses of cacao if she gets into a funk. She'll make a nice strong brew of cacao or make some good little truffles with it or something like that. And, um, you know, eat those for a couple of days to try to get over the hump of it um, without having to be dependent on this kind of like long term medication. Um, So it's uplifting. It feels good. Feels good um, in your body, too. And uh, I was kind of saying earlier that it's uh, it's stimulating, but at the same time, it's almost it's grounding um you know when when i ingest a a good strong dose of caffeine i'm kind of up up in the ether kind of jittery like oh i got to go do this other thing and i got to be around and keep moving and da da um with the cacao i feel a lot more centered i feel a lot more uh focused and uh calm and ready to sit into my experience or my intention of whatever it was using the the using that dose of cacao whether it was uh um just to enjoy it, just to feel the effects, to help me wake up, um, or what have you. Um, I also feel like it has a, a very strong therapeutic potential. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with some of the work that's being done with, with MDMA um, and psychotherapy, but for me, um, I feel like cacao is, is almost like a great substitute for that, and a strong medicinal dose of cacao is a great substitute for that um and also it makes me feel great after i take it um i don't get a, a big crash from it um and uh it still has a, a an almost similar effect in that it's it's stimulating but at the same time calming and heart-centered and can really uh for me has opened a lot of windows into myself into my physiology into how um i appreciate um the the relationship between my mind and my body um I didn't, I
3: didn't how about cacao and morphine and Ativan? Oh.
2: <laughs> so so combining cacao with morphine and Ativan. Oh, that's uh, that's interesting. I I haven't I haven't done that myself. <laughs> okay, how did that go? It makes makes you hyper. Interesting. Um, I have not tried that one. I I don't know much about it. Uh, it uh, sounds fun. <laughs> It is yeah. okay.
3: okay because my grandpa we get sometimes with a person there mm, talking about for the cacao and sometimes mix from medication for um uh, I don't know that um cacao mix so uh, adic- adi- um, and um addicted and did you try the cacao is. Mm, if the cacao is right, the yellow, the white one.
2: With the pulp on the outside? Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. Yes, it's very delicious. <laughs>
3: yeah. It's really good and sweet.
2: Okay. So so d- was the idea with uh, combining these things that the cacao would enhance the effects of the other uh, substances? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, uh, it sounds like it's being used everywhere for that, I guess. <laughs> Definitely being used in Mexico, Puerto Rico, the Caribbean, to uh, quite a bit. A the cacao
4: you just fed us is that of the when you were talking about the different percentiles of types of cacao grown in different parts of the planet? What did you just feed us? Uh, One question.
2: Great, great. So, what was the what were the cacao beans I just fed you? Uh, that variety was a Criollo uh, from Peru. Um, and uh, yeah, I actually just got it. Uh, a, a friend of ours that came into camp with us at the burn brought in you know twenty kilos of cacao, and like you know one pair of clothes for Burning Man. It was his first time, uh, but he brought the important stuff, which was a briefcase full of cacao, suitcase full of cacao. So,
4: yeah. And then my next um, thought was kind of ties into what she was saying: using the cacao as a container, um, like the optimal container to work with other plants one mushrooms and then like i know on the legal front in in the country at least they use other superfoods in tandem with the cacao and how that's just like this super container for bringing you know those minerals and the different foods and the superfoods into your body and and the idea um that in the you know just tying in some of the mystical aspect of this, in the King's Chamber of the Pyramid of Giza is this chocolate granite empty container. And I don't know, I, there's been some thinking around the idea that that's kind of um, speaking to this time where we grow into chocolate consciousness, where we begin to exercise our ability to use this plant in a super sacred way and honor it and hold it in high reverence and regard or whatever, so.
0: Yeah, I,
2: I definitely agree. Um, I you know. My hope was that uh, chocolate can change the world. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's something, it's, a, it's, it's pervasive, um, and uh, it's something that is in people's lives and that they actually don't know a lot about. Um, so it's kind of a good uh, window of opportunity uh, to get people um, to kind of bring more awareness into uh, their indulgences or, um, you know, even the... Uh, w- w- what cacao could potentially be used as an enhancer for or as a carrier for um you know i I mentioned john ott's talk um on cacao as a drug enhancer called chocolate, and uh in it he talks about some of the traditional uses of cacao um used with mushrooms um you know in various, in the Americas and things like that, so yeah, it definitely has a tradition of being used with any number of uh you know psychedelic compounds as an enhancer and as a carrier as an activator. Um, and something that I feel, um, brings a more heart centered, uh, gravity to the experience. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So I've used, I've used Costa Rican, Panama, Peruvian, Ecuadorian, Balinese, Venezuelan, uh, tons of different cacao. Um, and you know, there's a, it's really an an incredible thing if you can uh, find a company, that uh, does single source or single origin cacao um, even if it's something that's you know not uh, a superfood or that's not uh necessarily raw, you can really like uh some of these companies sell a single origin pack where you can get eight different chocolate bars that are super high quality um, and that only that have kind of a standardized uh, list of ingredients, which is usually just vanilla and some kind of sweetener in the cacao and kind of sample the different origins and see how different each different origin of cacao can be com- complete, completely separate uh, in taste from the other ones. Um, you know, there are, uh, I wish I would have brought one of my color wheels. I have a couple of really nice color wheels for cacao, which are, have flavors all the way around the outside of them, floral, nutty, um, astringent, bitter, um, all of these different flavors that cacao can contain. So, yeah, there's a lot of variability uh, between the different origins. And people have major preferences for one or the other. Uh, um, I like my cacao with uh, floral notes and like a, like a hazelnut uh, together. I think the two of those are good. And that's also because of the things that I like to combine uh, my cacao with in the preparations that I use. Um, um, which, you know, I use a lot of floral flavoring flavoring ingredients Um, and I also like a lot of like the hazelnut or pistachio and different things like that and when the cacao has those flavors innate in it they kind of enhance and synergize with the other flavoring components of it so it's kind of like a an alchemy or an art form to take a cacao that has an essence of a particular variety and combine it with different flavoring components or even with different uh, medicinal components you know and this is kind of like the alchemy of cacao you could say you know or the the shamanism of cacao Sure. So speaking to the relationship uh, in uh, my calling to uh, be a proponent of cacao, um, you know, Chris mentioned earlier uh, that I have worked in drug policy reform uh, for a few years and uh, worked for uh, an organization called MAPS that does some. Oh, got the party bus going by. Um, yay, Burning Man. <laughs> Uh, I worked for an organization for many years that was doing work with, uh, MDMA, um, and MDMA assisted psychotherapy, um, it's called maps. You can find them on the web of maps.org, a wonderful organization. Um, and, uh, really inspired by the work that I did there. Um, and, uh, the, the greater social change that can be brought about, uh, when people have, uh, a heart opening experience and when people have a, uh, a therapeutic window, uh, or when people have uh, a set and setting that's designed to help them facilitate a, a particular kind of experience to work through. And uh, something that I feel like is a, is a major problem in the world and uh, society as a whole is uh, people's difficulties uh, with uh, their own um, uh, emotional uh, capabilities, their, emo- their own uh, emotional... Uh, selves um, and their ideas of intimacy um, and their relationship between uh, their indulgences, uh, whether it's with people or substances or food or different things like that. So uh, for me, cacao is almost a a tool um, that I hope can allow more intention and more awareness and more focus to be brought into uh, people's relationships with these different things. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of my hope. And, uh, you know, I also have a, a heart of an activist. And, uh, you know, getting behind uh, the idea of, you know, ch- stopping child slave labor uh, is, is is pretty strong. I mean, you can't really argue against that. And, uh, you know, the thing is that a lot of these big cacao companies are just pushing it under the rug and acting like nothing is happening. And it's I, th- I think it's ludicrous that this exists, that uh, these companies can be making billions upon billions of dollars and high profit margins. Um, you know, cacao is, is a luxury food. Um, you know, it's something that, you know, is, is a vice for some people. It's not something that is often, uh, the sales of which are not often affected by economic uh, tumultuousness so uh these guys are you know even if the economy currently is in like a drastic uh bad state uh these guys are still having huge profit margins and they're not putting money behind making sure that there aren't children being abducted sold and forced into child slave labor uh for the products that they sell you know and they're they're marketing their products as good and wholesome um sometimes a lot of these companies are buying up uh, organic companies, uh, fair trade companies even, um, and changing the business models, um, to reflect their profit margins. And, uh, I think it's just terrible. I think it's just completely terrible and it's something that I want to bring awareness to and focus on and, uh, also empower people to actually make a change because it's something that you can do very easily. It's very easy to look at the cacao on the shelf. Is it fair trade? Yes. Okay, that's good. That's great cacao. I can vote with my dollar and buy this cacao. It's delicious. Um, or is it made in Africa? Does it say it's child slave labor free? If it's not, put it back on the shelf. Um, you know, the political the the legislative changes haven't done anything, and I don't know if they will. And I'm I'm encouraging people to vote with their dollar um, to try to influence change in this respect. So, yeah, that's my journey. <laughs>
5: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: When Brian was talking uh, just now about his work with MAPS, I remembered that, uh, if I'm not uh, wrong, I think he was the moderator of that MAPS conference in Colorado a couple of years ago that was titled, The Mile High Summit. Uh, Now, while I can't uh, point to a direct link here, of course, uh, I believe that it should be noted that this year, Colorado became one of the first two states in the U.S. to legalize cannabis. And my guess is that the conference that uh, MAPS and Brian helped organize at least had a little something to do with the uh, ongoing and very positive news coverage about cannabis in that state. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, some of the information that we uh, just now heard about cacao was uh, actually big news to me. Uh, Hopefully you've also had some new vistas open up to you. Uh, I sure know that I have. And uh, hopefully we'll have a good flow of comments to the program notes for this talk and uh, can learn about other aspects of cacao that Brian didn't have time to get into just now. And I'll also uh, post a link to the arrowid.org section uh, dealing with this wonderful plant so that uh, you can follow up with some in-depth and more specific information about cacao that you may be searching for. Now, before I go, I want once again to return to the Occupy movement with an update on the work that they are doing to help people who are still in dire distress as a result of the Superstorm Sandy, which devastated parts of the U.S., uh, uh, the Northeast in particular, last month. As you know, uh, if you've been keeping up with the news from that area, there's uh, still a very large number of people who have not yet been able to return to uh, even a semblance of normality. Uh, This is a disaster it's going to take a long time to recover from, but unless you dig deeply into the news, uh, well, you aren't going to find out much about it. So what I'm going to play for you right now is a brief report that I came across on the uh, New York Daily News channel on YouTube, and uh, it was just posted a couple days ago on November 30th, and so it's fairly recent news.
6: Many who believe the Occupy Wall Street movement was all but dead after its dramatic removal from Zuccotti Park last fall may have been surprised to see the group popping up once again in the days after Hurricane Sandy. But this time, Occupy wasn't organizing protests. They were calling on their large network to come to the aid of those hit hardest by the storm.
7: Operations in Jacoby started the Wednesday after the storm. Uh, I came in uh, that Friday, um, so you know, within the first week.
6: Brett Goldberg joined Occupy last fall and considers himself to be a full-time activist. He started working with Occupy Sandy in the aftermath of the storm, helping to coordinate volunteers at the group's hub in Brooklyn's St. Jacobi Church.
7: So I came in, started fielding questions and inquiries that were coming in on Twitter and Facebook, and then within a few days, because um, by answering all those questions and things, I started getting a a big-picture idea of what was going on. I started doing site coordination, and that's primarily what I've been doing since.
6: For longtime Occupy supporters like Jessica Roth, the shift from organizing in the park to community aid was a natural extension of the movement's original mission.
8: When we were down in the park, like, those first couple of months, it really was a community that was really um, communal and really um, supportive of itself and of each other and of people coming in. And there was feeding going on, and there was care going on, and there was medical attention, and there were... Clothing, and there were tents, and there were sleeping bags, and people's needs were provided for in that park, whether you had the means to bring it yourself or not. And that's what we're doing out here, too. So I don't really think it's that different.
7: What Occupy Sandy is doing uh, is it's making a lot of the Occupy organizing very tangible for people.
6: Jill Dowling was not a regular Occupy participant, but reconnected with the group in the days after Sandy, while looking for a way to help.
8: I did go out to some of the Occupy Wall Street protests on days when there were larger um kind of groups of people who were out there like there were teachers and unions out one day and that was a really motivating march to be a part of. So I'd say I'm friends with Occupy Wall Street but um and I try and keep uh, aware of what's going on and so and I do that mainly through Facebook um or through my friends who are involved.
7: It is definitely um, bringing in people who uh, never really connected with Occupy before um, but now it's starting to click for them in a different way. Um, and we're working with um, you know, a lot of communities that we were never really able to reach with the park. Um, being in the financial district uh, was limiting in a lot of ways but now you know, we're in there actually working in the communities.
6: Many of the donations collected at St. Jacobi Church are taken to the Rockaways, where residents are still struggling weeks after the storm. Volunteers like Chris Devlin, who are helping with recovery efforts on the ground, may not have been affiliated with Occupy before Sandy, but have come to be sympathetic to the political aspects of the movement.
1: I mean, I was a little wary, just as I am generally of um, ideology and sort of, you know, moving in political directions, I understand a lot of the positions that they take and I I get it and I know that there ultimately is going to be some agendas that are going to be have to be hashed out. To me it was immediate and it was like kind of, you know, it was action.
6: Chris has even taken on an organizing role and has started attending Occupy meetings.
1: So far I've been like really impressed and um, have met amazing people and have been really glad to work with everybody from Occupy. Uh, As far as the next operation you know like I said before ideology is not really my big thing so I wouldn't be like yes I will support everything that this group does but I'm you know I'm an ally so that's what it is I guess. People
7: come in as volunteers and very quickly become organizers and then the next step as we continue to push this politically is to take uh, volunteers into organizers and then make them activists. Um, and but I, there have been a lot of people that were around in the fall and in and, and the spring who kind of dipped out in the summer, um, or even earlier, that have now started to pop back up um, because it's the work that everyone has always wanted to do.
6: For committed activists, Occupy Sandy isn't just about the relief effort. They see this as an opportunity to draw attention to the same message they've been delivering since their days at Zupati.
8: You know. We're in this situation because of what's happening with the climate and all of us are in it and this is, this is a, an exacerbated situation of it, but it's, it's ongoing. You know, this is literally in our backyards right here and in some people's it's actually their front yard and it's their home. So it's really the time now is to figure out how can we rebuild the community in a way that gives them the resources that they need to prepare for the changing, you know, global climate situation that we're in as well as working against making it any worse.
7: You know, something hit hit New York, it feels very real, it feels very tangible, and people feel like there is a way that they can contribute without just donating a dollar to the Red Cross when they go to the ATM. Um, And it's a unique opportunity, much like uh, Zuccotti Park, Liberty Square was, where it's a radicalizing moment. where our job while we're, um, you know, we're doing this relief and recovery work is also to show people how the situation is inherently political.
6: Whether or not community groups agree with Occupy's political agenda they certainly welcome the help.
3: My wife <laughs> commented the other day that I didn't know what to think of Occupy until they started actually you know, doing what they did because um, you know people have their own impressions of um, different things but since the storm we have gotten nothing but tremendous support from Occupy. They have been there. They're here every day. Every single day, they're here with supplies, food, and more support. And they even have a network set up where, you know, we're in contact with a lot of other people who are helping through Occupy. So they've been a tremendous help to us.
6: Sammy O'Doe, who has run the Action Center in the Rockaways for the last 12 years, says Occupy Sandy's volunteers have made up a significant percentage of the outside help they've received since the storm.
3: As you can see from the lines outside, there's a huge need. Some of the people have gotten power and electricity back, but we still have a lot of people who still don't have heat. And um, Nitra is working on that project, and we've been told that the... um, City is doing everything to have these people rehabilitated. Most of them can't return back to their apartments because their apartments have molding, and um, because most of the first floors on, in each of these buildings was flooded, including here. So um, this is work in progress, and it's going to take a long time.
7: You know, we're kind of saying we're here until we're not needed anymore. Um, but what exactly that means, we don't know yet because um, the relief effort will hopefully not be needed um, after the next couple weeks. But recovery and rebuilding is going to go on for a very long time. And our role in that uh, will change and evolve. Um, We may not necessarily be doing the construction work, but we'll still be um, engaging with with the communities and doing community building and creating, um, helping community empowerment um, and uh, community connections. Like That's the role that, that I hope Um, will still continue to play.
0: And while I realize that helping out in a disaster uh, isn't for everybody, uh, not to mention the fact that unless you live close to the uh, site of some of these problems, there really are limits to what you can do to help. But nevertheless, the uh, Occupy movement isn't uh, just about one issue or one cause or even one part of the world. It's a truly global shift in consciousness that uh, I think has actually uh, been going on for a number of years now, but which is only now becoming more visible since the uh, uh, events of Occupy Wall Street, etc. in 2011 and 2012. Uh, All of that's uh, really led to the awareness that we aren't the only ones who have been thinking that, uh, well, things have to change and change soon if our species uh, hopes to prosper seven generations from now. And as an example of something that uh, people are doing to support the Occupy movement, uh, even if they live in a very remote area, uh, it comes from two of our fellow saloners who are, well, they're about as far removed physically from Wall Street as uh, I can imagine. And uh, here's the last part of an email I received from them the other day. On another note, I have been enjoying the Occupy Wall Street parts of the podcast. They are quite inspiring. I am emailing from the northern rivers of New South Wales, where I live on a property with my partner Sarah. We are doing, or trying to do, the whole self-sufficiency thing, basically trying not to contribute to this destructive system we've been born into. As well as learning about nutrition and natural medicine slash herbs, we are also a songwriting duo called The Chooks, that's a C-H-O-O-K-S, I think I got that right. We write protest songs, I guess you could say, social commentary. And the Occupy movement inspired the song I've attached to this email. This song is given free to the movement to download and share. We would be honored if you thought it appropriate to play on your podcast. Please also feel free to pass it on to anyone you think would appreciate it. Hope you enjoy it. Peace, Felice. Well, uh, Felice and Sarah, I truly did enjoy your music, and uh, I hope that the rest of our fellow saloners do as well. Uh, In addition to posting a download link to it in the program notes for this podcast, I'm also going to play it for us all right now. So, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.
5: High priests of Wall Street and the Federal Reserve, their corruption has cost us the earth. But they don't want us all to think, they just want us all to drink Coke. Just go to work, shut up, and buy. And the media is a corporate machine Manufacturing this climate of fear But don't you worry you'll be safe If you give up all your freedoms Well every word has been a lie Occupied Yeah Well, now they're changing legislation again To make it easy for a handful of men To trash the commons for a profit Leaving us a wasteland But there's a better way of life Occupy occupied finally the people have worked out just what's going on there's no time to waste we can stop this we need to say more Politicians serve the power elite. Life gets harder for folk on the street. Our public assets privatise that 1% hike up the prices. We are the other 99 occupied. The empire is making it smooth Illegal conduct, pepper spray and abuse But they won't show it on the news It's a peaceful revolution This is a call to occupy Public space is stolen